0: Hi, space junkies it's your host Annie Hanma here with a couple of quick notes before this episode starts the first one is that this episode was recorded in video format as well as audio so if you would like to watch this interview then you can head to youtube and search for space junk podcast and you'll find under the channel um, this particular video and you can also of course continue listening to this in audio form The second thing is that I now have a Patreon, which is www.patreon.com slash the space junk pod. If you are interested in um, learning more about what I do, you can find there a whole bunch of tiers. There's one which has little like behind the scenes videos and tips and tricks for getting through COVID quarantine. Uh, Some of the recent ones have been the history of Handel's music how to build a good blanket fort, and most recently a behind-the-scenes video where I talk through what I did when I edited this particular episode. So if you're interested in that, head along there and consider sponsoring the podcast. It is independently produced and so your money goes directly towards the production costs and it means that I'm able to put out podcasts regularly. That is all from me. I hope you enjoy this episode with Tom Standage, the Deputy Editor of The Economist in London. And if you'd like to get in contact, as always, the details will be at the end of the podcast. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard.
1: Okay, Houston, we've had a problem here. This is Houston, say again, please. Uh,
0: Houston, we've had a problem. Welcome back to Space Drunk Podcast, the co-video edition brought to you from Sydney and we cross live now to Tom Standard in London. Tom is a journalist and author from England, a graduate of Oxford University. He's worked as a science and technology writer for The Guardian and The Daily Telegraph. As a deputy editor at The Economist, he has been published in Wired and The New York Times. Tom, what a pleasure to be talking to you. I have to admit I'm a little bit starstruck but um, I wanted to start off by asking, how are you in these different times?
1: Um, I'm okay, physically. Um, we've just had this announcement from the Prime Minister that we're doing a, a proper lockdown in Britain, having kind of faffed around for a few weeks with kind of, I say chaps, it would be terribly nice if we didn't go to the pub quite so often, and then eventually they had to close the pub. Now we've got this more severe lockdown coming in. And, um, but in practice, I've been, I've been working from home. I mean, a lot of journalists work from home anyway, so I've been working from home for this the past few weeks and uh, we put the economist uh to bed we, we sent it off to the printers uh for the first time last week without having to have anyone in the office doing anything so we we are very very lucky that we are in a business that we can do everything remotely obviously we can't go out and report on things in much of the world um but it, actually my day-to-day life has not been affected to the extent that a lot of other people's have uh, and i i'm married to a doctor and, uh, my wife is um uh, obviously, you know, seeing a very different perspective on things. But, um, uh, you know, as as things go, I have been relatively unaffected by all of this, and I'm, you know, very aware of the fact that I'm very lucky for that to be the case.
0: That is good to hear. I've been thinking about journalism and media more broadly. Uh, one of my first jobs out of university was as an investment banker. And I worked on. In um, my team was corporate finance for industrials and sponsors, which is private equity, which is a really broad way of saying we just took everything that no one else wanted. Really, right, right. In, in the bank, and so we had sort of this this sort of grab bag of random industries like mining, services, and um, furniture retail. And we did uh, one of the things that I covered was the media sector, and so. Right. We, we did this thing where we were kind of going through and looking at revenues, and and I was profiling these these big media companies um, for potential sale and and so on. There was you know all of that going on, and in the end, I don't think anything came of it because at the time, um, this was sort of 2017, 2018. Things were a little bit rocky in the Australian economy. But anyway, I just, I found it really interesting looking over time. And when I was looking at a ten-year view, for example, I was seeing that drop off the cliff you, you t- talked about yeah, in yeah. 2008 and everything dropped off a cliff after 2008, but particularly media, it just never picked up again in terms of that advertising revenue. But then as I prepared for this interview with you, I started to look at your work around drawing illusions and and allegories between historical incidents and more contemporary incidents. And I thought, Oh my God, I've been looking at this from a decade perspective. And really I ought to be looking at this from a, a, a millennia perspective because you've written a fabulous book, which I really, really like. And I often have to say I like things for the purposes of interviews, but I genuinely like this book and the way it's written, which is called The Writing on the Wall. And it's basically about how ancient Rome did social media or something very similar long before we did social media. So it's saying, hang on, we think we're really clever. We've got all of this Twitter stuff going on. But the ancient Romans were doing all of this stuff before. And this appeals to me for several reasons. One, because I'm a historian of science. Um, and so I find all of this really interesting Two, because it's always nice to know that you're not that special and three because um, As an uber nerd I studied Latin to the highest level you could in high school and I studied the work of Cicero which you focus in on and I I just thought that it was just the most Inspired idea and I know you say that you keep doing the same trick. It's a good <laughs> trick Um, I'm glad you like it. So I wanted to read out a little section from the beginning of the book, and then I'm going to throw to you and basically say, talk about that. Okay. Um, So prepare yourself. (laughs) So you write, to modern eyes, this all seems strangely familiar. Cicero was, to use today's internet jargon, participating in a social media system. That is, an environment in which information was passed from one person to another along social connections to create a distributed discussion or community. The Romans did it with papyrus rolls and messengers. Today, hundreds of millions of people do the same things rather more quickly and easily using Facebook, Twitter, blogs, and other internet tools. The technologies involved are very different, but these two forms of social media, separated by two millennia, share many of the same underlying structures and dynamics. They are two-way conversational environments in which information passes horizontally from one person to another along social networks, rather than being delivered vertically from an impersonal central source. I'm throwing to you to comment.
1: Yeah. So, um, so yes, it's, it's my old joke again, which is that, um, you know, I, I only have one joke, but I like to think I tell it well. Um, yes, that, uh, social media is much older than we think it is. And in fact, if you look at the the long history of media, and and I start in the Roman period just because that's when, that's the first time you've got a kind of reasonable level of literacy in the general population, possibly as high as a third. Um, If you look at the past 2,000 years of media, the shape of it is very different. It is that media is social for most of that period. And then there's this anomaly between about 1830 and 2000, where mass media in the form of newspapers and radio and TV becomes the dominant form of media. And what's happened in the past 20 years is the reassertion of social media. And to people, you know, like us, who've only been alive for the past 50 years or so, the, um, we, we didn't experience the original era of social media. So it, this social media looks like it's new and it's just sort of popped up out of nowhere. But actually, if you look at the long history of media and the subtitle of that book is social media, the first 2000 years. Um, if you look at the long history of media, you see that the anomaly is in fact the mass media um, era. Um, and the mass media era occurs because mass uh, media technologies that allow uh, somebody to reach a large audience are initially very inefficient and so we, you can't all have a printing press, you can't all have a newspaper, you can't all have a radio station. Um, so you end up with this consolidation of a few you know newspaper owners own the newspapers and a few you know there are a few radio stations initially there are only state radio stations and then you get kind of a handful of uh, you know in America you get sort of a handful of, of, of big commercial networks um, and it's basically a bandwidth scarcity problem. Um, you can't all have a radio station because there isn't enough bandwidth because the way radio used to work was you had to have a, you know, a chunk of dedicated bandwidth. Um, and then the internet blows all of that up and says, actually, you can all have a radio station or a podcast or a TV show or whatever the hell you want to have. Um, and so that takes away that scarcity and it takes us back to um, a world that looks a lot more like what things looked like before uh, the rise of mass media uh, in the 1830s or so. Um, And so if you go and look at those pre-industrial social media systems like early newspapers, I mean, early newspapers were basically community platforms. You would put an advert in the newspaper saying, you know, I lost my horse yesterday. And it looks like this. Has anyone seen it? Um, and if you just go and look at you know early, early newspapers, this is what they're what they're full of, this kind of gossip. And it's um, and then, you know, letters where well, we've heard this or someone's written a letter to the paper or we've heard this from the next town's newspaper. So we're reprinting this letter that they've got. And it's all being kind of passed around. And then, um, you know, before that, you get social media in these lots of other environments, in in coffee houses, in, with pamphlets, uh, you know, the, the, scientific revolution and the kind of the idea of um scientific journals comes from the fact that um Oldenburg and others are trying to figure out a way to basically connect all of Europe's scientists in one giant coffee house and they figure out the way to do it is to kind of summarize the things they've been talking about in a in a journal and then and then send that journal around and then i kind of go back further the kind of um you get social poetry in the tudor court um, which is quite interesting, the sort of Facebook of the Tudor court. And then, yes, you know, probably my favorite example. I originally wanted to call the book Cicero's Web. Um, and in Italian, uh, the book is called I um, e Tweets di uh, Cicero, I think, um, which is Cicero's <laughs> tweets. Uh, um, although, of course, Cicero would not have, he, Cicero would have pronounced his name Cicero because all C's in Latin were hard. Right. And in fact, if you, look at the way, if you look at the way he writes his name in, in Greek, he uses the letter Kappa. Um, but anyway uh, so yes the Cicero example is lovely you get social media in the Roman period first because you've got enough literacy and you've also got the other thing you need for a social media system is cheap transmission from one person to another today we have broadband the Romans had slaves so they had scribes and they had messengers and um, noblemen like well not really a nobleman wealthy Romans like Cicero would have had a staff of people um who would copy books for them and deliver messages for them. And if you, and the way books, I mean, books were actually, uh, I have a section in the, in the book on how book publishing worked. but books were originally a social medium um, and they relied on person to person copying. And today we would look at that and go, that's piracy. But of course they had no concept of um, uh, of that at the time. So if you wrote a book, so I would write a book and I would dedicate it to, you know, my Roman patron who would have in fact paid me to, you know, he'd give me enough money to live on while I wrote the book. Um, and I would then give, you know, the, the first, proper copy of the book beautifully written out and uh, on scrolls to um to that nobleman and it would go in mm. his library and the hope would be that other you know that visiting scholars and uh, philosophers would go to his library and they'd say oh here you've got the new thomas standages and they they'd get it out read it they go this is great i've got to have a copy of this and he'd go leave it to me i'll, I'll send you a copy he would then get his scribes to make a copy of that whole book and um, and then send it over to them. And then they would put it in their library and then people would visit their libraries and go, oh, I see you've got this. And so, and then if, if a book was really successful, you could tell, because if you went down to the bookshops and there was a row in Rome where the particular place where the bookshops were, if uh, you went into the bookshops and they had your book. That meant that enough people were asking for it that they had bothered to get some copies made of it. And that was a great sign of success. And, you know, as an author, you would be thrilled that, that there were pirate copies of, as we would now see them. But this is very much a sort of post- you know industrial media way of looking at the world um you actually wanted your books to be passed around as much as possible and in fact galen the um uh, the great roman physician he's uh, he's uh um doctor in chief to the to the to the emperor marcus aurelius um and he's in another one of my books as well because at one point he conducts the greatest wine tasting in history um the romans often used wine as a medium for drugs and so galen uh, and the principle was the better the wine the better the medicine so galen goes okay takes it upon himself to go into the imperial wine cellars and find the best wine in the world and he's like you know he's working for the most powerful man in the world the, the emperor of rome at its absolute height um Anyway, so he goes and does this big vertical tasting and, and, uh, and decides that a particular vintage of Falernia is the best wine to make medicine out of. Um, but anyway, Galen had this problem that, um, people were uh, were taking down notes in his lectures and then passing them off as books. And another thing you could do is, if you had a bunch of, if you had a medical book that no one was buying, um, you would just change the title so that it said it was by Galen, and then people would buy it. So Galen <laughs> was so annoyed about this that he would go to bookshops and see, he would go and go to the Galen section and see what they had, and then he'd say, I never wrote this, or this is somebody taking notes in my lecture, and they've got all of these things wrong. Um, so Galen actually wrote a book. Uh, and, it, and it was and it's one of the books that survives of Galen's, And it's I think. Uh, but anyway, he wrote this book, which was basically a list of all the books that he'd written. So you could tell which ones weren't by him. <laughs> so it was like a list of the genuine works by Galen. Um, so this but anyway, this, these analogies, I think they they reveal both the similarities between those different media systems. Um, but also it, it's another way of us looking at the at our own systems. It makes us mm. realize that the idea of copyright and the idea of piracy, um, and in fact, you know, in video games, there's was what used to be called the Chinese model, which is a, a model where you give the game away and then you charge for the for the in-game adults, is now a very, very popular um, mm. model. In, but one of the reasons it emerged was that in China, um, it was a response to massive piracy of software. If you weren't going to be able to stop people stealing your game, you had to find a way to make the piracy your friend. And so the way you do it is you give the game away and you just say pirate it as much as you like, folk. give it to your friends. You can play it free, but if you really you know, want to unlock all these features, then you have to buy these in-game items. And that's where you uh-huh. make your... That's where you make your money. So it's a model that that uses piracy as a form of distribution. Um, so just generally, the b- bigger picture here is that I think we can understand the past better by using these analogies. So I kind of think of Cicero differently because I go, oh, he's using social media, and you can see him kind of sending text messages across Rome and, and, and this kind of stuff, he, where he'd write on a tablet and it would be. You know, there's one, it was a point in one of Cicero's letters where he's writing to a, somebody else about a point of law and he says, I don't know the answer to that, but I know somebody does, hang on a sec. And then he goes, okay, I've just got the answer. And in, he's paused writing the letter and sent a message across Rome to his friend and got the answer in the middle of writing the letter. So that's the kind of thing that you could do. They had this kind of quite fast person-to-person messaging by virtue of the fact that they had slavery. Mm. but that's how they did it anyway so we can understand the past better and it changes our perception of it but we can also understand the present better because the the past casts light on the present as well and that's the that's the thing i like to just keep doing
0: yes and you write about these um if we move beyond cicero which i'm really sad to do although i I will notice I, i will note that there's a you write about how cicero Inclu- includes copies of letters that other people have sent.
1: Yeah, kind of retweeting. Him. That's very, very common. Yeah. So he will write, there's a there's a letter where he says, "I um, what is it?" He writes to his friend Atticus. Um, I th- oh no, oh no, it's his friend, oh, it's Caelius, and he says, "I enclose um, Balbus's letter to me and Caesar's letter to him." And this is when Cicero's trying to prevent the um, the Roman civil war, and he's trying to be a peacemaker between the various factions. And mm. um, and so they're all yes, they're copying. You know and it 's like an email thread it's like this is what he said to me, and this is what I'm saying to you. Um, right. but also if there was an interesting letter you know I mean if you think about the eruption of Vesuvius and so you've got the the account um, you know, Pliny's account of it, and that's written as a letter. so very often the way that news would be passed around is that somebody in a town would get a letter from someone else with news in it. And they would read it out, and then other people would say, "Can I have a copy of that letter?" So I, so I can send it to my friends, and then they would say, "You know, my friend so and so heard from his friend that this is what had happened, and here's the account." Um, and you know, that's how early newspapers look as well. They're basically letters, they're letters to a newspaper or to another newspaper that's been sent to. Her. So you know, this is and that's email threads, and it's and it's social media, and it's sort of passing. Through, yeah. And of course, it's how rumors spread as well. But um, but it's very yeah. very old.
0: <laughs> I was going to say it reminds me of um, of how we. I will say we used to, but of course we still do, um, take screenshots of text message conversations and then yeah. port it on to <laughs> our friends and be like, can you decode this? Can you form? believe this? Yeah yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, can you believe she said this to me? <laughs> things like that. It's that thing of instantly taking something and copying it across and, and then getting the commentary on that thing.
1: Exactly. So you're sharing the, so it's, this social, it's the social media and that's, you know, this is very, very ancient. And since people have been able to communicate at a distance, which basically means writing so you need to have writing and you need to have um uh cheap transmission and that's why you only get it really for the first time in the roman period you don't get it in in uh, in egypt for example because although the scribes can write um and there are some examples of scribal letter writing communities in ancient egypt but generally um you don't get it there and then greece is a much more oral culture um and you know you get the uh Plato in the Phaedrus is worrying about uh, this this whole screed against writing. And the problem with writing is that texts aren't interactive is basically the problem Um, that you can have an argument with a person who understands a text, but you can't have an argument with the text. Um, Mm. And uh, and so, you know, it's the same thing that people worry about today when they say, well, um, no one remembers anything anymore because they know they can Google it. And there's evidence that that's true, that people don't bother to remember some things that they might have bothered to remember before because they knew they could google it but this was a greek objection to the use of writing which is that it's better if you learn things properly and then you've got them at your disposal and you can use them when you're making a speech and and so on and one of the things that cicero does is he's a bridge between the greek and the roman um cultures because he's actually you know he speaks greek he spent a lot of time in greece um and he was a you know, he tried to be a bridge between. She um, tried to bring some aspects of uh, of Greek literature and and the Greek way of looking at things into into Roman life. And the Romans were kind of loved some some bits of Greece and not not other bits. But um, the Romans are, uh, you know, they're an oral culture as well, but they're also a written culture because if you're going to have an empire. You have to. You can't do everything by word of mouth. Whereas if you're a bunch of city states where you, you know you get everyone together to vote on things in in the agora, then um, then you can do everything by, by word of mouth. So, so that's why you get this first in the Roman period. And, um, and it's, you know, it's one of my favorite periods in history, the late Roman Republic, the time of Cicero and Caesar and all that's It's great.
0: I'm going to bring you forward to another of your favorite periods in history, which is Oxford in the coffee houses during the 16, mid sixteen
1: Oxford and London, yes, the, the Oxford-London-Cambridge cluster, which we still have, it's basically, uh, um, uh, if you look at kind of Britain as a tech cluster, it's basically Oxford-London and Cambridge. And there's a bit of video games in the north now as well, um, and there's also a big kind of creative animation video game um, area kind of around Bristol and Bath, but, but yes, um, uh, certainly the 1660s, the scientific revolution, um is a is a sort of um oxford london cambridge um thing to a lot of uh, to a big extent and you see kind of movement between those those cities and you get the first coffee house in england in oxford um and, and they're also popular in in cambridge and the reason i love these is again it's a social media system so um so people would go to coffee houses um in and then you get this explosion of coffee houses in london in the 1660s and they are very much like websites um because they specialize in uh the distribution of information of a particular kind. So you would go to the Rainbow, that's where the scientists would go to hang out. Uh, you'd go to, um, to Lloyd's, that's where the, the insurers would go. So Lloyd's of London is originally a coffee house. And uh, there was a coffee house called Jonathan's, which is uh, turned into the London Stock Exchange. That's where the stock traders would go. Um, So depending on your interest, you would go to different coffee houses to discuss different topics and they would subscribe to all of the periodicals and pamphlets. And if you if you'd written a pamphlet on a particular subject, you would go and leave copies of it in the coffee houses that were interested in that subject. And then people would read the pamphlets and they would discuss them. And one of the rules in the coffee house, it was, um, you know, we're not quite sure how well observed it was, but you would walk into a coffee house and the the person behind the bar would say, what news? And if you had any news, everyone go quiet. Uh, you would then have to say what the news that you'd heard was, and you would say, you know, the grand vizier has died or that the king of France has been assassinated, or whatever. Um, so, um, and then if you had real news, that people would go, wow, that's amazing, and they'd rush off to, you know, tell other coffee houses. Um, but then there would be, um, you would pay a penny for a dish of coffee And you could then sit down at these communal tables and the idea was that um, class distinctions were left at the door and that you could talk to you were encouraged to talk to other people um, and they would talk to you. So it was this information exchange that could happen and it could information could jump over ideas could jump over barriers that would otherwise exist barriers of class. you know, barriers of uh, people not meeting each other because they weren't interested in you know the same subject. So you could self-select a group of people who would probably be into the same things as you and you could walk into this space. And so coffee houses were called penny universities because if you wanted to learn about science, you just go and hang out in the rainbow and um drink coffee. And like Starbucks today, you know, they'd make you buy another cup of coffee every few hours, but the rest of the time you could just read the newspapers and like listen to the scientists talking about stuff. Um, and then the other thing is that uh, Britain, uh, London doesn't have street numbers at this stage. Uh, street numbering comes in later, and it's got the beginnings of a postal service. So the way that you, um, the way you check your mail is you say write to me at the Rainbow, and then you know my correspondents in Oxford and Cambridge would write to Tom Standage, care of the Rainbow Coffee House, London, uh, at the sign of you know the sign of the Rainbow or whatever uh, in Fleet Street or wherever it was. And then uh, so I would go to the coffee house each day to check my mail and to get the news and to like hang out with my my community and then we'd read a you know, pamphlet we'd say this pamphlet about you know sunspots or whatever is completely wrong um and uh, and so we'd have an argument about it and then i might say right, well, i'm going to write a, re- a response to this pamphlet and then and then i would write my response and then i would maybe um send that to you know to people who interested in it or i would present that at a uh, at a meeting of the royal society and the royal society would have these uh, meetings where they would you know talk about science and do experiments and stuff and then they would you know go to the coffee house afterwards and the coffee house had a And it's just like now, if you go to a, um, you know, you go to a, a, I remember going to astronomy society at Oxford and uh, first you have the kind of quite formal lecture and you have all the slides and they tell you about their results. And then afterwards you have the coffee or you go to the pub or both. Um, And that's when you really get to talk to the scientists and, you know, find out uh, what's going on. And that's when the kind of more speculative discussions happen. It's exactly what happens in the scientific uh, revolution that the, um, the, the Royal Society meetings are a bit more formal, um, and then they go to the coffeehouse afterwards. And uh, and you know, most famously, there's a series of arguments called the coffee house discussions uh, that take place between Hook, uh, so Robert Hook, um, Edmund Halley, and Christopher Wren. Um, and Hook is an interesting character because. Um, he was so interested in so many subjects, he seems to have gone to about 40 coffee houses on a regular basis. So if you look at his diary compared to, say, Pepys's diary or you know other diaries of people at that period, um, they would have like two or three coffee houses they'd like to go to. And Pepys is always writing vents to the coffee house and he'll you know, tell you the conversations he had at the coffee house. Um, Hook went to about 40 different, um, because he was just a polymath. He was interested in everything. The other thing is he didn't seem to like coffee very much. Uh, he seems to have preferred hot chocolate. So he was a hot chocolate man. Whereas and coffee in the, I have to say coffee in the mid 17th century was pretty disgusting because mm. it had to be, it had to be taxed in advance. It was basically, um, the, the, the tax system was not set up to cope with coffee. So it was treated as a special kind of beer. And the problem with beer is that you have to pay the excise duty on it, um, you know, marked with an X on the barrel. So this is why you get like triple X and four X stronger beers because it's, it goes back to the excise that you have to pay on the alcohol strength and you've got small beer and everyone would have beer for breakfast until coffee comes along. And then coffee wakes them up. Suddenly they've got, They've got caffeine and they start having all these ideas, and you get the scientific revolution. But you also get the coffee houses, which encourage people to to get together and talk about things. Anyway, so you've got um, you've got Hook is moving between all of these different places, um, drinking his chocolate, uh, and Halley and Wren, and they are arguing about the um, the inverse square law of gravity. Um, and um, in particular, um, they are arguing about whether elliptical orbits are a consequence of the inverse square law. And we know that you know they've had Kepler and they've figured out. Kepler has figured out that orbits are elliptical, um, and uh, and of course you know Hook is one of the people sniffing around the idea of the inverse square law, and Halley happens to mention that um, he saw Newton and um, recently, and Newton said, oh yes, I've got a, uh, it, it's not quite like that. Halley writes to Newton, that's right, to resolve this argument because they're having this argument about it, and um, and Newton says. Um, well, actually, yeah, I, I proved that um, it turns out that an inverse square law gives rise to elliptical orbits. Yeah, I've got a pretty, it's in a pile somewhere around here um, and, uh, and he can't find it. And so Halley kind of pesters him and says, look, if, if that's true, that's really interesting and you should publish it. Will you write that up properly? Um, And so Newton eventually sits down to write it up. And and then he realizes that in order to explain that, he's going to have to explain a few other things. And so he starts kind of, so it starts to turn into a book and eventually it becomes the Principia Mathematica. And the Principia emerges basically, the the spur to writing it is that coffeehouse argument where Halley wants to basically resolve this argument with Hook and and sort of, um, and Hook's like, yeah, I'm pretty sure that's what it is. Hook of course, you know, famously, Hook had lots of ideas. and and didn't write them down, or to be less fair to him, or less less nice to him. Hook often claimed to have done things that other people, um, ha, you know, had done before they had, but just never having written it down, so we don't know. Anyway, Newton did write it down. We get the Principia. We get the you know the the foundation stone of of modern science, and uh, and and one of the things that that comes out of is coffee houses.
0: Yes and I I think it's really fun actually because Newton's been cropping up in all of my really nerdy feeds recently on social media because of course Newton did some fabulous work while in self-exile at his country house um, during times of bubonic plague and so I think that for many of us we're kind of feeling that sense of solidarity across the centuries with people like Newton who also had to lock themselves away yeah so
1: 1665 and the the great plague of London so London basically cleared out and um, anyone who could leave the leave the city did um, for a couple of years and yes Newton went and hid um, in a house and he did various things there he did a lot of writing um, uh, including bits of the Principia and then he he did the optics experiment where he stuck a he stuck a bone in his eye, didn't he? Um, he and uh, yeah, he did a whole load of. He, he did, did the one of, with the, the
0: little hole in the, the wall in yeah. the window, and it came through. It had the
1: spectrum. A prism, and he splits. Yeah, so he shows that the um the uh, white light is made up of uh, lots of colours. Yes, yeah, so uh, and that's that's part of the experiment where he almost blinds himself with the um sticky things in his eyes as well. So I think he yeah. he basically distorts the shape of the eyeball um to see how that see how that works. Yeah, so, so I know what you mean. I've seen that floating around on Twitter as well, and it's like. Newton came up with the Principia. What are you doing on lockdown?
0: I know, it's like no pressure, guys.
1: <laughs> no, exactly. I think that's a little bit unfair. But yeah, there, yeah. And so there's a lot of this in the Roman period as well. Obviously, you know, plagues have they've been with us for the whole of human history. And there's a lot of a lot of periods where people are forced to isolate. And some people are able to make use of that. And um, uh, they weren't being distracted by digital networks that can... <laughs> but, you they, they, know, I, I, we're, we're lucky in the sense that it's never been easier... Um, to do things remotely than it is now and obviously some Mm. people can't can't do their jobs remotely but um, but a a larger proportion of people can than ever and things like food delivery and and so on I mean if this had happened um, you know 20 years ago um, we'd be having to do things with telephones and there'd be lots of I don't know the disruption would be would be much greater Um, Mm. so in some senses we should count our blessings
0: we'll expect the principia to be delivered in due course (laughs) <laughs> I am writing another book. I'm
1: writing a book about the um, the history and the future of the car. So that's what I'm supposed to be doing. Um, oh, that sounds so
0: fantastic. It's a
1: historical analogy again. So it's the 1890s and, you know, the, the transport system is unsustainable and there's too much pollution and congestion and, um, and too many road deaths. And so, and then a new technology comes along and everyone goes, ah, um, and we're kind of in that moment again now where people are saying, look, there's all this technology we could use to change the way we travel around our cities. We can have Hyperloops and we can have self-driving cars and we would have scooters and um, and so it's a very similar, it, and it's clear that our current way of doing it is not sustainable, so we need to change. So I'm sort mm. of saying, how do we make the decisions we made about cars? Because some of them weren't such good decisions, <laughs> and uh, what can we learn from that whole whole period? Um, so I'm having a lot of fun digging into that. And that's that's my the nearest I'm coming to writing a print here, uh, under the current conditions. So best of luck with uh, your lockdown at your end, and uh, thanks for having me on.
0: Thank you. You've been listening to The Space Junk Pod. If you'd like to find out more about anything that was mentioned in this podcast, please contact me on Twitter or Instagram where I'm at Annie Handma, or TikTok for that matter. Uh, or you can email the space junk Pod at gmail.com or you can contact me through my Patreon platform, which is www.patreon.com thespacejunkpod. Thanks for listening, bye.